Thank you for tuning in to the Practical Preservation Podcast. Please take a moment to visit our website, practicalpreservationservices.com, for additional information and tips to help you restore your historical home. If you've not done so, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, and also like us on Facebook. Welcome to the Practical Preservation Podcast, hosted by Danielle and Jonathan Kepperling. Kepperling Preservation Services is a family-owned business based in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, dedicated to the preservation of our built architectural history for today's use as well as future generations. Our weekly podcast provides you with expert advice specific to the unique needs of renovating a historic home, educating by sharing our from-the-trenches preservation knowledge and our guests' expertise, balancing modern needs while maintaining the historical significance, character, and beauty of your period home. Today on the Practical Preservation Podcast, I have with me uh, Timothy Essick from the Landis Valley Village and Farm Museum. Uh, Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. So tell me a little bit about your background. Well, uh, first of all, I'm the museum educator at Landis Valley Village and Farm Museum, and I've been here since 1997. Uh, As part of my background, I uh, attended Alvernia University, which is in Reading, Pennsylvania, and got a BA in history. I attended Kutztown University in the late 90s and received a master's in public administration. I started my uh, historical career at the Old Barracks Museum in Trenton, New Jersey, which was built as a fort during the French and Indian War and was then used as a military hospital during the American Revolution. Uh, There may have also been some Hessians staying there prior to Washington crossing the Delaware and attacking Trenton and defeating the Hessians. So I worked there for a couple of years. I then came to Pennsylvania and started with the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission at the Daniel Boone Homestead. Yes, the birthplace of America's greatest frontiersman. And I worked there from uh, 1992 to 1997. Following that, I came here to Landis Valley Museum in 1997, and I've been here ever since. Very interesting. So as your role as the museum educator, do you oversee all of the, the, I guess, the educational programming for the museum? Is that? Okay. I oversee the educational program, which, ooh, 10,000 school children a year. Yeah. Obviously not this year with, <laughs> with COVID, right. but uh, hands-on programs. The interpreters, uh, folks in period garb mm-hmm. who do different craft demonstrations, I'll help with uh, visitor services. I'll help with uh, special events. The heirloom seed project, uh, yes. which I'll get into a little bit later. The historic farm program, the heirloom, the museum educator oversees or manages those types of programs. Okay, very interesting. Um, so tell me, why, why did you, what drew you into history or preservation? I always like to answer this question. When I was in fourth grade, Mm -hmm. I picked up the history book. And of course, this is back in the 1970s. 
the book's already 10 years behind. Right. <laughs> and I remember reading the book during my first month in fourth grade. Yeah. So I guess a history geek or a history right. nerd. I read that book and I, and I loved it. I, yeah. I just thought it was so neat. It was great. So it really was fourth grade that mm -hmm. I knew I had some affinity right. for history. And as I continued my education through high school and into college, uh, internships, uh, summer work at museums, I just knew history. that history was, Shakespeare said, there is history in all men's lives. <laughs> I, I knew from an early age right. that history was going to be part of my life. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's funny that I was not quite as young, but my senior year of high school, I spent in the social studies department because I, I did not need to take any more math or science classes. <laughs> Very good. I understand. I understand. So, um, so tell me about the, the Landis Valley Village and Farm Museum. Um, it's history. Landis Valley Village and Farm Museum is a Pennsylvania Dutch living history farm and village. Again, except for this year. <laughs> it represents the Pennsylvania German culture, its history heritage from about 1740 to 1940. That living history village includes buildings where people in period garb offer uh, historic trades. We have a living history uh, farm program with historic breeds of animals, horses, cows, sheep, chickens, uh, pigs. The Landis brothers, George and Henry Landis, which is the reason that Landis Valley Museum is even here today, they had this vision mm -hmm. to recreate Pennsylvania German culture in this uh, historic village and farm area. And they started it about 1925. Now, the brothers born just after the Civil War Early on in life, they seemed to have an affinity for the Pennsylvania Dutch culture, mm -hmm. and they began to collect things. Okay. So from their teens up until near the end in the 1950s when they were in their 80s, they collected objects that told the story of Pennsylvania Dutch life. It could be anywhere from a small butter mold to a Pennsylvania Lancaster long rifle to a Conestoga wagon and everything in between. Right. And they collected over 150,000 oh objects. Were they mostly like every day, like use, like things that you would use every day? It, it depends. Was independent. Okay. In fact, I'll, I'll tell you this story that they were known as the nickel men. <laughs> they were contemporaries of Rockefeller Right. Billionaire, Ford, billionaire, DuPont, at least a millionaire. Right. They were in contact with them because they all had museums. Uh, yeah. Winotur, uh, Williamsburg, mm -hmm. uh, Dearborn right. in Michigan. They would go to auctions or flea markets or something like that. Right. And somebody would have a, a, a rice straw basket and it might have uh, a butter mold. Mm -hmm. It might have a, a lock from a flintlock, it might have a small piece of redware. And the auctioneer might say, do I hear two bits? 
-hmm. And George or Henry, if they did their homework, say, oh, I'll, I'll buy that. Right. So to say they got everyday type objects is absolutely true. Right. But it spanned the it entire culture. Right. So that's how they acquired. And they were both educated. They knew what they were doing mm -hmm. in terms of what they, they were collecting. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So it wasn't just random. <laughs> we're going to go out yard sailing. <laughs> well, and, and I'm sure yeah. just as anybody, they, they certainly did buy things just for themselves and right. maybe aren't part of our collection so much. But they did try to focus on that. Mm -hmm. And as I said, they started when they were teens. That's that's really interesting, and it was it was definitely definitely a vision. I think that's the right word. Yeah, visionaries. Yes, yes, yes. So we talked a little bit about the material collections. Do you have them like spread out throughout? The, I know when we came in, when I came in, there was the redware. I was looking at that and admiring it. But do you have like do you rotate the collections, or are they out and and able for everybody to see? You know, when you're open. Well, I suppose with any collection that size, 150,000 objects, you can only put so many out right. at a time. So we do try to do rotating exhibits here in the visitor center. And we have, there's about 60 buildings on site. Now, some of them are small. They might be uh, an outhouse or a right. dry house. And then some are as large as the Landis Brothers House or the visitor center. So it varies uh, with regards to what collection pieces exactly. we show at various times. but spanning over those 60 buildings, including two very large storage facilities, mm -hmm. the collections gallery and the wagon storage facility. We try to keep most of the collections in an environmentally controlled uh, situation. Yeah, that, that, that's definitely absolutely necessary. Um, when I was reading, preparing for this, I noticed that some of the buildings that were moved here, very similar to, to Williamsburg, um, what, were there buildings that were originally on the site or was it just farmland before they started it? Landis Valley is made of a, a hodgepodge of buildings. Okay. Some of the buildings are original to their location okay. and dates, like the Jacob Landis House, which dates back to the 1830s and 1840s. All right, one of the oldest, if not the oldest original building on site. Then you have a blacksmith shop that dates to about 1870 which was located in Gettysburg, okay. which was brought here right. from Gettysburg back in the 20th century. You have the, the Sextant's house, the, the church caretaker who was part of the Mennonite church, which is right across the street from us. They moved that onto our property and dates to about 1800. Then you have buildings like the 1700s log farm, okay. which is made of a log house, a log barn, uh, a smokehouse, which was built in 1970, mm -hmm. but represents that earlier time period. Was it completely re, were they just, did they repurpose the materials and? No, that 1970s building was 1970s, yeah, was material, 1970s material, okay. but it looks like it a looks 1770s like, yeah. log cabin and was built using Pennsylvania German construction right. from that time period. Right. And then you had buildings like the schoolhouse, which dates to 1890, it was put on the back of a truck and moved here in the 1960s. So we're made of a, an amalgamation, right, you know, right. different different styles of buildings. Some brought here, some original from here, some built in the 1970s, but look old. So it gives people a, a complete picture. Right, and it really is a village then. It's really, it really just show what, what that would, yes. what that would look like. And 
even showing the different architecture from the 1700s through, you know, that really does show, you know, how, how you know, people build things and then they build new things <laughs> and they can be side, side by side. Um, so uh, talk to me a little bit about the challenges of preserving or interpreting history at a, at a PHMC site. Well, I guess Landis Valley faces the same challenges of interpreting history that any site does. Mm -hmm. There's always a question of resources. There's always a question of staff. There's a question of research. But I'd like to give you a quote sure. from Henry Landis about just such a question. And it goes like this. And again, this is Henry, who was the, he was the driving force behind the museum. While Henry and George were in this together, right. Henry was the, was the, 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 the stronger advocate. Yeah. And he said, to preserve the vanishing culture of his Pennsylvania Dutch ancestors for the education of the public, the necessity to do something to put on record what is quietly but surely slipping through our fingers into obliv oblivion. He believed that since these Dutch people have distinct characteristics and have achieved nationwide distinction for their sterling qualities, it is important that the attention should be called to their culture and standards through those tools of their crafts and arts and customs that are obtainable. Mm -hmm. This, now this is me, <laughs> I'm, I'm done with the right. question. This is preservation. Right, that is. That yeah. is what the Pennsylvania Historical Museum Commission mm -hmm. has been attempting to do since right. they obtained the property in the 1950s. Right. Right. And that was one of the things that I was thinking when I asked you about the, um, the, the if they were collecting everyday things, because those are the things that get lost, like, because people don't think they're special. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, like, you know, the, 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 the things that people use every day, it's like, oh, don't get rid of that. Well, take things like, I mentioned, you know, butter mold. Right. Or pieces of furniture. These are the types of things that would be in everyone's home. Right. So our mission is to preserve those. Now, if we have 50 uh, ladder back chairs, right. all right, you really want a 51st ladder back <laughs> right. There has to be something significant. Right. And I know curators like to use this term called provenance, oh, right. which is it has a story behind it. Mm -hmm. So if people still come to us today and help us to preserve this history by, by offering things to right. us, it might be a donation, it might be, hey, you could buy this at auction, it may be, I'll leave you this in my will, something like right. that. So we are still preserving the right. Pennsylvania and, German and culture today yeah. through our collections. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've noticed you have several educational resources, including the um, heirloom seed collection and the site rentals. Can you tell me, you know, give me some details on, on, the, on the different things that you do besides just being an interpretive museum? Well, our educational resources, and I mentioned this earlier, that we see upwards of about 10,000 school children a year, and many of them participate in hands-on activities. We give them a chance to try 18th century or 19th century toys. We give them a chance to try 18th or 19th century uh, chores. Uh, we give them a chance to see the farm program at work. We give them a chance to do calligraphy or fracture, which is Pennsylvania German art. So right. it's all about engaging uh, the students through our educational program. The site rentals, weddings, yeah. receptions, uh, picnics, 
birthday parties. We have business meetings here. So that's all part of, and many of those are after hour type programs. And then during the 1980s, and this isn't with regards to the heirloom seed project, there are many programs around the country that are doing preservation of of seeds. And again, we've been doing it since the the mid-1980s. And one of the most frequently asked questions uh, that I'm asked is about our historical information when it comes to Mm. these seeds. We do local research first, trying to determine the age of the the varieties. We look at diaries, old seed catalogs, uh, almanacs, newspapers, magazines, and that helps us to explore the names of these these varieties that we have. And our varieties sometimes come to us with stories of seeing this in my grandmother's garden or in my great-grandmother brought these seeds over with her from from germany when they immigrated and the heirloom seeds are different from the modern counter parts of seeds the plants grown from seeds offered from the heirloom seed project are adapted to the climate and soil of -hmm. southeastern pennsylvania the heirloom seed varieties are passed from generation to generation and when they're planted they produce plants with fruits and seeds that resemble their parents. Right. Um, and sometimes the heirloom seed project, we sell seeds to people as close as our next door neighbor mm-hmm. and as far away as Japan and Australia. Oh, yeah. that's, over, that's I, think, I think last year, over 20 countries, mm-hmm. beginning gardeners, university researchers. We have currently about 200 varieties of vegetables, herbs, and ornamentals. And when you talk about preservation, the Heirloom Seed Project preserves the historical significance of of the Pennsylvania Germans and their seeds. And and, um, I I will, this spring, I was going to buy some of the the starter plants because you couldn't have the sale. And I was disappointed when I got on to order mine and they were all sold out. So (laughs) they are are popular. urban garden fair which takes place mother's day weekend every year unfortunately this year because of covid we were not able to do it we were able to sell some seeds in the parking lot but at a a reduced number right we grow as many as twelve thousand plants for sale which helps us to perpetuate the program oh yeah 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 and i i'm thinking that i didn't realize that you had like the heirloom, I, I don't know if that's what they're called, the, the farm animals. The historic the, farm the program. Historic, historic farm yeah. program. Yeah. yeah, I didn't realize that that was a part of, of what you do, but that's I think that's important too because our the way that we farm now is so different that, that we're, we lose those characteristics of what would have been native. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so t- uh, tell me about um, what you see from your your little your corner of the world, um, the challenges and trends in, in preservation. Well, thinking back to that quote that I just gave mm-hmm. from Henry Landis, preservation and its challenges they they fall on a on a couple of obvious things: uh, resources, you know, the expertise of staff, and one thing. And again, this is this is simply my opinion. It's challenging the it's challenging the mentality or it's challenging the concept of history is not was, history is. Some people see things like the preservation of 
this old building as, no, 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 just get a wrecking ball in here right. and knock it down. Even if you have provenance, even if you can show that there's something important about uh, modernity, it's, right. we, we've got to move on. And that is a concept that with each passing generation, it, it changes as to what is important it when it comes it to does, historical yeah. preservation. So I may look at something and say, no, nah, that, that just isn't necessary. We just don't need that. And right. someone would look at it from a different perspective and say, we absolutely positively need right. to save that. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge. And it doesn't matter where in this country. No, no. It doesn't matter where yeah. in the world. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I've, I've been in some of those discussions where, you know, as part of my consulting work, I'm, you know, listening to people debate, you know, how to, how to craft a, a, an ordinance for, for preservation. And, you know, there's like the debate, you know, do we do the 50 years of the Secretary of Interior standards, but now that's getting, you know, into the 60s, you know, and or, you know, and, and are, we don't think those buildings are important. I'm like, but maybe in 100 years people will. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what the answer is. I, I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for mid-century modern, but I'm not running out to preserve them. <laughs> Someone may, yeah. may look yeah. at a building that's yeah. 50 years old and say it absolutely has to be saved. Right. Somebody looks at a building that's 300 years old and says, tear it down. It's and true. It's true. And it, and it, and it is its perspective. And I, I think that, that that's why there are, there's not just one answer. No. There, there, it's very there complicated. Isn't. It is. It is. It is. So, um, so tell me, how can someone support um, support the site, you know, with COVID and everything that's going going on? Well, I'll answer the question two ways. How can someone support the site without COVID once we, right. once we yeah. reopen? Obviously, memberships, yeah. uh, donations to the site, uh, volunteering at a museum. And again, these are indicative of many different types of organizations. And in this age of COVID, membership and donations, because... Landis Valley, like many other museums, is in uh, in hibernation. Right. We're, we're closed. Uh, that doesn't mean that the work stops. Right. But if there's not as many people here to do the work, uh, it still needs to be uh, supported. Right. And I always I always tell people, uh, you know, write your state representative, write your state senator, write the governor, tell them how important. Uh, historical preservation right. or how is historical interpretation yeah. or historical education is even though we're in this hibernation period right. due to covid yeah no I, I i agree is there as um as we talked was there anything that you thought of that maybe you wanted to share before before we wrap up well first of all i, I appreciate yeah. uh, this opportunity landis valley museum is a it's a unique and rare gem in southeastern south central pennsylvania because it tells the story of the Pennsylvania Germans who figured greatly in the, not only in the establishment of, of Pennsylvania, but especially the mid-Atlantic states and the, the influence that the Pennsylvania Germans have on life, even as we experience it um, today. And Landis Valley Museum seeks to continue to tell that story. Right. And uh, hopefully we'll We'll be able to start up again soon and tell that story through a living history venue right. like the Heirloom Seed Project, like the historic farm program, like the historic trades, whether it be spinning and weaving, whether it be cooking, whether it be blacksmithing. All of those things can be found at Landis Valley Museum when we are fully supported, uh, provided full resources. But we will continue to do our best, even with the challenges that we face right now. Very good. Well, I... 
I appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with me. Um, thank you. Can, so tell me, um, how what's the best way for someone to contact you or the site? Should they go to the website? Well, again, in this unprecedented mm -hmm. time with, right. with COVID, you can always use the, the contact number, okay. uh, which is on our website. It's 717-569-0401 or our website, landisvalleymuseum.org. Now, I will say this, and I've said this before, while we're in hibernation, we might not answer right away. Right. <laughs> there's, there's not someone here, you know, six days a week doing regular business hours, but there are people here and we will get back to you as soon as we can. I, I've had people who called and they might have to wait a week to get the call or they've sent an email to our website, but we will get back to them. So, yeah, and I think that's important for everybody to kind of remember, especially as it seems like things are getting worse again. <laughs> We're yes. just gonna, yeah, have to have to give each other a little bit of a little bit of leeway. <laughs> we we yeah. do our best to stay in contact with with people, and we've we've had a number of inquiries. When are you gonna reopen? When's your next special event? Right. And unfortunately, our answer is the same. We are we are closed due to the COVID pandemic, and when the when the governor and the legislature all decide that things are safe and right. protocols are in place and that staffing and visitors are their safety is the number one priority well then we'll reopen and we look forward to seeing people right. again <laughs> definitely we, we really do <laughs> well thank you very much i, I appreciate your, your time today thank you very much I, I appreciate you asking me thanks for listening to the practical preservation podcast the resources discussed during this episode are on our website at practicalpreservationservices.com forward slash podcast. If you received value from this episode and know someone else that will get value from it as well, please share it with them. Join us next week for another episode of the Practical Preservation Podcast. For more information on restoring your historic home, visit practicalpreservationservices.com.